Laodicea is the seventh church. And Laodicea is probably, to be fair, the most famous of the seven churches. And that is not a good thing when you consider why most people know about Laodicea. Laodicea is infamous for being the church that Jesus threatens to vomit out of his mouth. Well, that's not a good, no one wants to go to Laodicea. If I, you know, one of the descriptions we made seven months ago in this, and we've said it two or three times, is these churches are not, um, you don't go to a church that's only that church. Okay, you don't go to a, you go to a church down here on the corner, you go to a church or this church, because we're a church for all intents and purposes. We're not one of the seven. We're all seven of the seven at some point in our existence. We're, we, we are all that. That's a harsh reality we might as well just get used to. Um, the seven churches of Asia existed 2,000 years ago when they were written to. They were actual churches. But that doesn't mean we ignore them because that's not us. That's Ephesus. That's Smyrna. That's Sardis. The point of anything in which Jesus is being unveiled as he who was, he who is, he who ever shall be, is that he was that back there, he is this right here, he will be this down the road. So if I write these in AD 67 or I write these in AD 95, and those two dates are kind of the popular landing zones for Revelation, I'm not worried about which date it is because it's not just Ephesus and it's not just Philadelphia, it's us. It's me. It's the church of the 16th century. It's the church of the 19th century. It's the church of the 25th century. As long as there's a church, Jesus will stand in the middle of it. As long as there's a church, they'll have problems with each other. They won't get along with their brother or their sister. As long as there's a church, they'll be tempted to lean towards power structures. They'll be tempted to sell their soul so that they're not persecuted or so that they're not stepped on or so that they have a voice. As long as there's a church, there'll be good things being done in the world. Someone will be loved. Someone will be picked up. Someone will be cared for. As long as there's a church, there'll be idolatry. There'll be a mixed God that appears somewhere in that church where it starts out being pure about Jesus and it'll turn into being about something else. And those something else will be a lot of somethings. Sometimes that something else will be growth or crowds, or money, or influence, or position, or buildings, or properties, or theology, or denomination, or independence. There'll be gods that rise up that will get the attention of the sermons and the songs. We're not going to get around that. The kingdom is, is ever spreading from Jesus onward. And in the middle of it are all of us broken people that make up the church. A house full of broken vessels doing what we can, honoring a God we know that loves us, you're not going to find a perfect one. So stop the search. You're not going to find the church on the corner. You go, they got it all right. The second you start investigating that way, you know you are the problem. <laughs> That's us. That's all of us, though. It's not, not pointing the finger. We're all there to where we, we think we can fashion. Every church that's ever... That's not a fair statement. What do I know? A lot of places that have started, started because the people that started them were convinced that there was a lot of stuff in their old church that was right, but there was a couple things they could do better than their old pastor did, or their old youth pastor did, or their old board of directors did, that if they could just tweak old so-and-so and get him off the board, or change the way that preacher acted, boy, we could get this right. And then two generations later, another group raises up out of that same place and goes, you know, if we could have just got rid of two of those guys that started this thing in the first... We've been doing that for 2,000 years. But what do we keep from that church to that church? That Christ walks into this one and this one and this one. And hopefully good comes out of that because good comes out of what Jesus touches. So it's unfortunate Laodicea is famous for being the lukewarm church because she's also got some good qualities, even though Jesus isn't commending her of them because there's such things that need to be brought out. It's also sad that she's famous for things being lukewarm and then some other things that happen inside this story never get talked about. Well, we're, we're going to remedy that today. We are going to deal with the lukewarm because you can't deal with Laodicea and not deal with lukewarm. But we're also going to deal with a couple other things that I think Laodicea would rather have on her bumper sticker 
than lukewarm. And they are things that really, I think, put the spotlight on where it needs to be when you study Revelation. Spoiler alert. Spotlight in Revelation doesn't need to be on us. It needs to be on Jesus. It's an unveiling not of me, not of you. It's an unveiling of Christ. And that's where the story begins. I start this week, this month, in an unusual spot. We, don't, we usually go straight to text. This time, I go with a quote. Eugene Peterson wrote one of the great poetic voices on Revelation, Reversed Thunder. Here's a little quote from the Laodicea passage I like. Lukewarm is a special fault of the successful. This is a good theme to kick off with today. Lukewarm is a special fault of the successful. Doesn't mean you can't be lukewarm if you're unsuccessful, but it sure does mean that if you are successful, lukewarm's the snake lurking somewhere close by your pot of gold. Almost every time. And not just in the church, but in almost every area of life, the hungry usually keep working harder. The full find a way to sleep a little longer. And so lukewarm becomes that thing that you've got to be on guard for. And it's also interesting. I brought this out last month that I, in my own thinking, thought, why doesn't God end with Philadelphia? It's a high note. Philadelphia, the church of love, open door, all that good stuff. Seems like a natural progression. I've wrestled with that for the last month. Why does God end with Laodicea? Maybe because Laodicea is the top of the mountain financially and socially and economically. She's where everyone's trying to get to. And the thing you need warned of that you'll need warned of across time is watch out for lukewarm because there's some things that can follow that will end up being a problem. And since we're all on that way up and we really think that's what the kingdom's doing, it's just sending us up, 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 up. Then what do we need warned about at the top? So you do it at the end of the, of the churches. So what you need warned about at the top is a position of lukewarm that will harm the world around you more than help the world around you. And what good is a church that harms the world around them? And so Laodicea has to go last. As much as Philadelphia, would, we'd love for the best to be last. Laodicea has to go last because it's the last reminder we need on our way up that ladder of success. Here's what we want to do is read. We're going to take some time as we go through. I'm going to read the entire passage of Laodicea. I'll make some comments as we work our way through the Laodicea story. All right. So some of this will be on a little bit longer than others. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, we're going to slow down right here in this first verse and we'll stay here for a minute before we move on. Other things I'm going to almost skip because we're going to come back and really hammer away. So when we get to the lukewarm stuff, we're just going to read them and move on. That doesn't mean we're skipping it. It just means we're skipping it for now, right? To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And I realize there are no proper noun usages in the Greek. We do not have a Greek word in which the word amen has a proper noun, so the capital A exists in the Greek. We do that in the English. And actually, we don't even do that in every translation, but we always do it on proper names. If I say Keyshawn, I write it down. I don't put a small, a lowercase k, put an uppercase k because I'm honoring the fact that this is a man's name. Okay, in this passage, we would do this across translations because what the author is doing in honor is honoring the name of the one who is speaking. And what we learned in chapter one is the one who is speaking in the middle of the lampstands is Jesus. Therefore, look at the titles that are handed off to Jesus in, in Re Revelation 3.14. Amen, faithful, true witness, beginning of the creation of God. We're, all, we're talking about the same person. So what happens in the Laodicea unveiling, the final of the seven unveilings, is we get the rest of the Jesus titles. All the things we've been learning about Jesus in the six churches. You get to the seventh church and you get this smattering, this little pop, 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 four shots of the last thing I want you to see about Jesus before we usher you into the throne room of Revelation 4. And the things that you catch about Jesus may mean, they mean one thing to us and they probably mean another thing to the Hebrews. Let's try to think like a Hebrew for a moment. The Hebrew people had said and written the word amen throughout their culture. And that word meant, I agree, so be it unto me. So if you said amen to what the rabbi was saying, you were saying, you were really, and, and there were even some, there's even some of this in Hebrew literature, you were putting your seal, you know that signet seal? The, the hot wax and then the seal across it, that was also sometimes known as the amen. You were literally sealing the document with your approval. You were lining yourself up with the thought. So to say amen to what was said or read was not just 
preach it preacher because that's what amen meant when I was coming up. Like, you know, you're preaching and somebody goes, amen. That's, that's preach it preacher. That's, a, that's just a short way of saying, you know, get on it. Say that, you know, that kind of thing. But, what it, but its essence is more of, I agree, I align myself up with that. So if I say to you, you are the righteousness of God in Christ and your response is, amen, you're saying, I agree with that. I, I receive that as being what Christ offers me as righteousness, amen. And so you get, you, as you start to read it that way, you come across, say, Paul's description of, Jesus, of the covenant in 2 Corinthians 1, where he says, all of the promises of God are in Christ and in him they are yes and amen. So what does Paul mean by that? He's speaking to a largely Jewish audience who would have understood that to mean this. Christ is the answer to everything God promised Israel. God promised them land. God promised them an inheritance. God promised them generations. God promised them a seed. He goes, Christ becomes the fulfillment of all of those promises. He is the amen, the last word. So when Christ says yes at the cross, heaven says amen to the covenant in Christ. And so you can then amen the cross and receive what the covenant has on your behalf. You get to, when you get to Laodicea, the description given of Jesus is Jesus is not saying amen. Jesus is amen. Jesus is the final word on God. Nothing left to say. So what's God look like? Jesus is the amen. What's God love like? Jesus is the amen. What's God promise like? What's God's promises? Jesus is the amen. You can just keep going back to that, going back to that, because there's no amen you can give that doesn't end in Jesus. Jesus is the amen. He is the faithful and the true witness. Put those two together, really. It's a witness who is faithful and honest. He doesn't witness a different thing to a different culture. He doesn't witness a different thing to a different church or a different generation. What Jesus is witnessing of his Father in a first century Roman culture is what Jesus is witnessing of his father in a 21st century American culture. He hasn't changed. James would say it this way, in God there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God doesn't change across time. Well, I used to do this, mm, no more. Now I'm going to do this. No, Jesus becomes the faithful and the true witness of God. He's what God looks like. And then also the beginning of the creation of God. And you can think of this two ways. I'll give you the classic way of thinking of it, and I'll give you what I think is the progressive revelation way of thinking of it, because revelation is thinking forward. The classic way of thinking of it is Jesus was there when God hung the moon and the stars. John agrees. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. The progressive revelation way of thinking of it is Jesus is the beginning of a brand new creation on the earth. God started over at the cross. He put a new man on the earth, and he put him in a new garden called the kingdom. And just like there were problems in the first garden, there's problems in the second garden. But the first Adam failed in the first garden, and the last Adam hasn't failed in the second garden. And the last Adam keeps growing across time in his church. The last Adam is the beginning of a new creation. The last word spoken of to describe Jesus to the seven churches is almost ironic. The last word is beginning. He's the beginning of the creation. The last word that is used to describe Jesus in the church is beginning. So I'll say this, the last thing we get as a church that is revealed to us about Jesus through the seven churches is he's the beginning. Isn't that interesting? The last word we hear is he's the starting point. Get started now. Let Jesus be your guide. That's the last word given to Laodicea and therefore the last word given to us. 15, I know your works. That you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And again, we leave this because we've got a lot of work to do on it, and we'll do that in a moment. 17. Because you say, watch this, this is now the quote marks mean this is what Laodicea says about herself. So notice this. It's not what I say about you, it's what you say about you. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The, the quote stops at nothing. So they're not saying that they're poor and miserable and blind and naked. They're saying we, have rich, we are rich and we don't need anything. He said, but the contrast is actually true. He doesn't deny that they are actually financially well off. This is not a statement of you say one thing, but you guys are stupid. 
You say one thing, but you're wrong. No, it's your one thing and you're the other thing. Notice this. You are rich and you've become wealthy and you don't think you need anything. That's what you think you know, right? Here's what you actually don't know. He didn't say you're wrong. He said, here's what you don't know. So you know some things about yourself that are possibly true, but it's possible that there's some things you don't know about yourself that are possibly true. That's, that's what you need in a revelation of Jesus for. Let me start over there. You don't need a revelation of what you know. You need a revelation of what you don't know. Okay? So what you know is one thing. What you don't know is what's hurting you. And so that's Jesus to Laodicea. You know you're rich. You know you're wealthy. You don't think you need anything. What you don't know is that you're actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked in addition to being rich, in addition to being wealthy. There's a spiritual condition. There's also something else going on. 18, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyes all that you may see. Can you go back one? Because I just want to point out what is going on behind the scenes in one verse and then the remedy of that in the next verse. So watch the descriptors. You're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked and you know this has to be in the invisible realm because they're rich and they're wealthy. So you know they're not running around naked and poor. So this has to be a deeper kind of nakedness. It has to be a deeper kind of poverty. It has to be something going on on the inside. Therefore, the remedy for it is not write a check the remedy for it is not buy a shirt. The remedy for it is going to be something in the spirit realm. So the next verse then stacks these up. So buy gold. That will solve your poor problem so that you could be rich. Get white garments so you could be clothed. That will solve your naked problem. See what happens in the next verse. You take all the issues from the first verse and you put them in, contrast them with what he can do so that your nakedness may not be revealed. You guys didn't know you were blind. You need to anoint your eyes with eyes all that you may see. So every problem they have in the previous verse has a remedy and Jesus is the source of the remedy. That's why he starts off with buy it from me. He goes, I'm the answer for what's wrong with what ails you. I'm the answer for what you need. It's an intimacy relationship. It's what I have available to you that is yours if you, just want, if you want it. 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. That's a discipline and a verbal rebuke, a spiritual rebuke. If the Lord isn't disciplining you, how would you know you're loved? One of the earmarks of love is that he keeps working on you. He keeps tweaking. He keeps talking. He keeps going, hey, there's some stuff in here. Let's talk about it. That's not a mark that you're a sinner. It's a mark you're a saint. Please let me say that again. The marks of being a saint is that you're hearing the Lord say to you, let's fix some stuff. That's not the mark God's mad at you. It's the mark he thinks you're his kid. I don't come up to somebody else's kid and start disciplining them, giving them life advice, trying to fix some of the stuff in their life. But I do with mine. Why? Because I love them and they're mine. So if the Holy Spirit is dealing with you, that's a great sign. You go, well, yeah, but boy, the stuff he's dealing with me is tough. Congratulations. He must really believe in you. Because he's dealing with some tough stuff going, let's work on this. I, I'm not finished with you. You and I are going to have a long run together. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the things going on in your life. Why am I doing this? Because I love you. And so I rebuke you and I chasten you and therefore be zealous and repent. So obviously he loves Laodicea. She's got some problems, but he's telling her the whole reason we're having this conversation is Laodicea, I'm madly in love with you. I like you a lot. I got great plans for Laodicea, but I want Laodicea to be honest with herself. I want Laodicea to divorce herself from entanglements that are dragging her down. I want Laodicea to realize what it means to be my child, to be my bride. So be zealous and repent. Get eager. The word zealous there is be eager about it. Change your mind. Be excited to change your mind. And man, if we need anything, it's a revival of eager repentance in the church. And by eager repentance, I don't mean a revival of spotting sin. I mean, be excited to watch the Holy Spirit give you something new to think about. 
be excited to go back into the Bible to go, I think there's something else there I missed yesterday. I'm going to get to see a little bit more of it today. I won't get it all today, but I get a little bit of it today. And I'm excited about where this is going to lead me tomorrow or next week or next year. Be zealous and repent. Why? Behold, and this has become the verse. This is the verse everybody knows outside of spit you out of my mouth. This is the one. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to in to him and dine with him and he with me. And I, I'm not going to say anything about that on the first pass because that's one of those that's going to get its own segment as we progress today. There's no way you can do Laodicea without a couple minutes on 320. So let's leave it there for now and close this at 2122. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To him who overcomes, I'm going to let you sit down with me. Sit down on a throne means we will be in a reigning position and we are done. Seventh church, finally, we're finished. If we can get to the end of this, we're finished. We're going to have to work on this stuff. The overcoming in this area is the highest of the overcomers in the seven churches. This is it, man. You get to sit on the throne with Jesus. There's a place we can get to of intimacy with him. That fo- Revelation 3.21 follows 3.20 for a reason because on the other side of the door of intimacy, on the other side of the door of fellowship where we're zealous and excited to change our mind, we get to sit down with him and rest from our labors as he rests with his. This isn't somewhere in the glory land. This isn't someday when I die I get to go to heaven. This is a reality that Laodicea can have if she'd get eager and change her mind. And so this, this excites me. This is where I, we all want to be in, in Laodicea. And so even if you spot yourself in Laodicea today, Hold on. You are loved. There's a really good ending. All right? So it's not so bad today if you go, oh, I was lukewarm, didn't realize it. It's okay, because what happens on the other side of it? Get to sit down with Jesus on his throne. It's the best room in the house, best seat in the house is with him, the right hand of the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So the option's yours. It's always yours. It's always individual. It's not, hey, church, if the church has an ear to hear. No, always individual. He that has an ear to hear. Inside of the Laodicean church, who's going to listen to me? inside of the Philadelphia church, inside of the Ephesus church. Every one of the seven churches ends with the same verse. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Because God's always calling you on an individual basis. Let's talk Laodicea for a second, okay? Here's some, here's some stuff that you need to know. Laodicea is the wealthiest of the seven cities. Not just the wealthy. I don't know if it's the wealthiest of the seven churches, but it, le- it stands to reason that he called them rich and they happen to be in the wealthiest of the seven cities. So it stands to reason that they're probably the wealthiest of the seven churches. They are also a major medicinal center. That probably speaks to the Isolve passage in Laodicea, something that they would have understood is a place where their eyes are anointed with Isolve. Laodicea sat between two cities famous for their springs. One city was a cold spring city, and the other was a hot spring city. The city of Laodicea sat almost directly, almost identically geographically in the center of those two communities. And over the course of centuries, Laodicea tried various schemes to bring water in from the cities. But no matter what scheme they tried, the water always arrived tepid. So when they tried to bring the cold water in from one city, by the time it got there, it was warm. And by the time they brought the hot water in from the other city, by the time it got there, it was warm. So for Jesus to call Laodicea lukewarm, he's playing on their sensitivities as a city. They realize they're a place that produces neither the hot nor produces the cold, the cold, but whatever they have ends up in sort of a tepid place. That leads us back to the text. Remember this phrase and remember those two communities. One's got cold water, one's got hot. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So what Jesus does is take what they realize in the natural geography and he makes a spiritual allegory out of it. So first and foremost, the allegory of hot water and cold water was a geographical allegory of physical Laodicea. He's just using what they know, all right? He's not making up a new story. He's using a geographic story they could understand. So then because you're lukewarm, and you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So he's saying you're a city that's accustomed to the water being lukewarm. You're not able to bring it in cold or hot. But I say to you that when I see you, you're actually the lukewarm water. You're not just a city that's bringing in lukewarm water. I think you're actually the lukewarm water. And because of that, we're going to vom- I'm going to vomit you out. Before we deal with vomit, let's deal with lukewarm. Lukewarm is water 
that is neither cold nor hot. I think, this is a Paul White opinion, but I think that this description of Laodicea is one of the most understood of all of the churches, misunderstood of all the churches. What I mean by that is people hear the lukewarm passage in Laodicea and, and, and we have these ideas of what that would have meant to Laodicea because we know what that word means to us. This is a classic mistake of Bible study is that we take our contextual understanding of an event or a word and we drop it into an ancient setting and we assume that that's what they thought because that's what we think. Well, that's what I think. That must be what they thought. Sometimes it's not at all what they thought because they didn't have the word you have. They didn't have the usage of that word that you have. Um, We do this all the time. You'll watch an old movie and they'll say something and you'll think, oh, that's silly. That doesn't mean that now. And sometimes it means something totally different than it means now. And you'll think, how'd they get by with that back then? And you'll go, oh, that word didn't mean that 40 years ago or 80 years ago or 100 years ago. And why is that? Well, it's because context changes, culture changes, definitions change. And so we don't go back and police that old, well, actually, we've kind of started going back and policing the old now so that you're not offended. But in reality, is we can't actually change what happened. It is what happened. Um, in, this, in the case of the Laodicea, we have the idea about lukewarm that I think has changed across time. Let me give you an example. Third or fourth century, church, church father Oregon, if you can't be hot, this is a quote from Oregon, If you can't be hot, then follow the flesh. You'll bottom out faster. And that sort of became the way that was preached for hundreds of years, which was basically, look, if you can't be on fire for God, just go ahead. If if you can't be on fire for God, then just go ahead and follow the flesh because at least if you follow the sins of the flesh and you're cold, you'll end up broken and you'll need to get saved. And one of the reasons why Jesus is standing there knocking at the end is because your, the end result for lukewarm is you let the water sit there long enough, it's going to get colder and colder and colder. It's never going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And so where you're not actively seeking God, you're not going to be on fire. You're just going to go from tepid to below average to dead. And then you're going to need Jesus. And so he goes ahead and knocks at the door. And that's kind of how Laodicea has been preached. It's this church in which probably none of you are actually saved. Most of you are casual Christians. And you're, you, if you stay in this state, you're only going to go downhill until all of you are so cold, you're going to backslide anyway, and you're all going to need Jesus to knock on the door of your heart. And how many of you here, heads bowed, eyes closed, how many of you here hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart today and would like to let the Lord Jesus come back in? And we would say the, tra- the greatest tragedy is that Jesus has been kicked out of his own church and he's having to knock his way back into the Laodicean church. And I've heard it preached that way, and I've preached it that way, and for a long time I didn't know there was any other other thing you could think about Laodicea other than that's what that hot and that cold, that lukewarm kind of meant. And then there's sort of been grace interpretations, this finished work grace message that's sort of sweeping the earth. And thank God, grace, grace is the best thing to sweep the earth. It's better than a lot of things that can sweep the earth. And as the message of grace has permeated pulpits and, and thought processes and commentaries, Grace interpretations see this as mixture. And mixture is defined as preaching the cold law mixed with the fire of the new covenant. So we call the law cold and dead and grace or finished work or love or covenant, whatever you want to call it, flavor of the week, really, that's exciting. That's the fire stuff. At one point that was Pentecost too or the baptism of the Holy Ghost or whatever. And that if you put those two together, you've got what we call quote-unquote mixture. Here's what's happened with that, though. This is inevitably what happens with those kind of definitions. That leads to sort of a hyper-doctrinal critique. So that when you walk into church, you critique every worship song, all of their lyrics. you got to find out how much mixture's in the songs. And then when the sermon starts, you hyper-critique every word of the sermon to see if there's any mixture in the sermon. And then you hyper-critique all the invitations to see if there's any mixture in the invitation, to see if we're mixing covenants or mixing convictions. And then we sort of start to sort of boast on having a nose for mixture. In fact, I heard a guy 
not long ago bragging, I can within, within five minutes, I can spot a mixture sermon. And then another guy, oh, within two minutes, I can spot one. I thought this is like, name that tune. It's like, oh, I can spot it in 12 seconds. You know, I can spot it in the title. I can spot it in the text. And, you know, I can sniff out whether there's going to be mixture in the sermon or the song. And it gives us this sort of what, what might be considered like a hypersensitivity to mixture. And what that looks like for those that are going, what in the world are you talking about? It, is, it, it literally becomes anything that deals with an ought to or a should or you need to or an introspection or a self-look. We go, that can't mix with finished work. So if the guy says anything about need or lowliness or hurt or self, well, I'm out of here. That's mixture. I only want to hear about grace or love or peace or finished work and anything outside of that is a mixture message all right and what that's done is created a sort of mixture sheriff and i think the creation of mixture sheriffs and that's been all of us at some time or another in grace seems co contextually inappropriate to this lesson and here's why if you lead into this passage God said to Laodicea, you guys are rich, you have need of nothing, but you're also this and this and this and this. It's not doctrinal. You're already mixed. All right? You already are one thing and another thing. There's already a mixture that's going on here. It doesn't have anything to do with I think it's entirely interpolated to believe that Jesus, that the Laodicean church is talked to about, about wealth. Let me, let me try to categorize this. Wealth, influence, but you're actually poor, miserable, blind, naked. And then the very next statement, he condemns their doctrine. He doesn't shift gears. He's talking to them about self-perception, what they think they are versus what they really are and then introduces the allegory of mixture. He's not shifting gears to now talk about their doctrine and abandoning all that stuff about them thinking they're rich, but they're actually poor. So it's not a turn, a hard turn, where Jesus now wants to talk about what theology mixture is. And here's why we can know that. Remember what I said a moment ago? What one word means now, you can go back and watch an old movie and they'll use it. You go, ooh, oh. And you go, no, that, that word didn't mean that. That's not what he means. You go, well, how do you know? Well, because that word didn't even exist in that culture. So it couldn't have meant what you think it means there because they didn't know that word, right? Lukewarm is the same way. Because the word that is used for lukewarm, using that word as a metaphor for mixture did not exist in literature either before or during the writing of the book of Revelation. So the author could not have meant mixture. No one would have known that. No one had ever used the word lukewarm in any printed literature we found to mean mixture. But it did exist as a metaphor for apathy and indifference. So when the apocalypse of Jesus uses the word for lukewarm, the only word they know in all of literature that that thing can possibly mean is a people that are indifferent to what's going on around them. And suddenly that actually makes sense if you've just said to somebody, you think being rich and wealthy is all this is about. But I've got news for you, it's not. The issue is you're lukewarm. And what's that mean to them? It means you're indifferent to everything around you. You're so happy to be wealthy and without need that you have forgotten that the world around you needs what you are. And it's really, really easy when you're successful to also be lukewarm because you don't need anything. And who cares what's going on in the world around you? I got mine. Maybe if they worked harder, they'd get theirs. And so you can just sort of set back, prop your feet up and go, life is good. God loves me. I'm full of favor while the world goes to hell around you. And God says to Laodicea, it's not that you're not rich. It's not that you're not wealthy. It's that you're lukewarm. You have hidden behind being rich and wealthy. While in reality, there's issues going on both in the church and around the church that need your attention. And apathy isn't the direction that we can go. And what's the threat? He says, if it doesn't change, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I want 
to ask you. What is the other story? And there's only one. In the entire Bible up to this point, where God vomited or something vomited something out of its mouth. Jonah. And so for me, the Laodicean message would have been most familiar to a Hebrew literature literate audience who's now getting the word lukewarm, which only appears as a word meaning apathy, and it's connected to vomiting out of the mouth. And the only story they know where God did any vomiting is when that whale cruises up to the beach at Nineveh and vomits Jonah out. And Jonah jumps up, goes in, and Nineveh delivers the word, and you know the story. Or maybe you don't. And if you don't, what we need to remember about Jonah is it's more than a story about a whale. In fact, if most of us, all we know is Jonah got swallowed by a whale and whale threw him up and oh, into the story. And we go, well, what's that mean for you? It means better do what God told you to do or you'll get swallowed by a whale. <laughs> that's odd. That's how most of us take the Jonah story. Better do what God told you to do, you get swallowed by a whale. By the way, that's not the Jonah story at all. The whale is not God swallowing you up because you didn't do what he told you to do. The storm is what happens when you don't do what God told you to do. The whale is mercy. They threw him into the sea to die, and the whale swallowed him. If anything, the whale's the cross. Three days and three nights, you come out of a resurrected tomb a new man. That's what the whale story is supposed to be. That's why Jesus said, a greater than Jonah is here. Not only will I do what my dad told me to do, but when I come out of the whale's belly, the world will change. What you really realize when you read Jonah is he came out of the whale's belly and didn't change. He just did what he was supposed to do. Because sometimes we do what we're supposed to do and we're still not what we need to be. Which is another way of saying the gospel is not about you doing, the gospel is about you being. And so you can go do everything God told you to do and still be trash. I mean, you can still not be what you're supposed to be while you do what you're supposed to do. So wouldn't it be better to be who you're supposed to be and then let your do come out of your be instead of your be come out of your do? Instead of being like, oh, I'm going to do, 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 do for God and maybe someday I'll go to heaven. Well, we all tried that. And there's people right now watching and listening that are trying that. I'm going to work and work and work. Fingers crossed. Hope it did enough. God take me in. Or I know who I am. Not, apathy's not enough for me. What was Jonah's issue? Here's the, here's the Jonah story in a nutshell. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, I don't want to go to Nineveh. So he jumps on a boat and goes the other way. He goes the exact opposite of where he's supposed to go. It takes four chapters to figure this out. But in the fourth chapter, what you learn is that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that if he went to Nineveh and he preached and Nineveh repented, God would forgive them. And Jonah wanted them to die. Jonah hated them. They represented everything wrong in the world. Nineveh was the bad guy. And God dared to send one of his kids to the bad guy. And Jonah, knowing God was good, said, I'm not going. Because if I don't go, then they can't repent. And if they don't repent, God won't forgive them. So it's best to just run away. The vomiting up of Jonah is to try and deal with the apathy that's in Jonah's heart. Jonah's issue is not just a mere hatred for Nineveh. Jonah's is worse. At least if you hate somebody, you're thinking about them. See, I don't think hatred's the opposite of love. Hatred's an emotion you put something into. I mean, you got to think about somebody to hate them. Apathy's the opposite of love. Because apathy's like, <laughs> I don't care if you live or die. I don't care if you get saved or not. I don't care if you have peace or no peace. I don't even, I don't even care about you. Nineveh's issue is not so much hate. Jonah's issue is not so much hating Nineveh as just not caring. So much to the point that he would rather just run than to go deal with the issue. And when he's vomited out of the whale's belly, he still has the option to not go to Nineveh. He chooses to go. And so for Hebrew people, the Jonah story was a story of apathy that meets a just God. So for God to say to Nineveh I, or to Laodicea, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, they're being reminded, maybe we're Jonah. Maybe we need to reconsider ourselves here. Maybe the world around us matters. Maybe church is not about getting richer and more successful and resting in favor and living the good life. Maybe the church is where we come and refresh one another, love one another, but then we don't set on that. 
we take that right back out to every Nineveh we know. And we love them too, because we realize that we're a lot like they are, that we're not really that different than them, that the truth is we're actually poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. That we can't hide behind our financial, material, social wealth. We have to realize that it's not about that. That God's Word is real regardless of the recipient, regardless of who hears that message. So what, Joan, what, what they say is, I'm rich. We've become wealthy. We don't need anything. But they don't realize their true condition. I really... Re I really felt this next two sentences powerfully, this next couple of sentences over the last month. The church needs to never forget what she really is full of. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked people. Now, we, we kind of push back against that sometimes. We go, well, that's not me. I'm the righteousness of God. It's not the point that you're the righteousness. Of course you're the righteousness of God, but you're also broken people. Like you're not that many steps away from the person outside that you're pretty sure isn't going to make it. And that's the, how he wants to end the message to his church. He's going, don't ever forget. Where have we, this is what I've been wrestling with. Where have we seen this kind of people before? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In the Jesus story, where did we meet wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Well, if you don't know, consider who Jesus ate with in the Gospels. Go to the Jesus meals and sit down at the table with Jesus. And what people keep showing up? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they have the gospel preached to them, which tells me that the people that heard him first were the ones who knew they had nothing. The good news sounded so good. Think of the naked young man he meets on the beach at Gadara when he crosses the Sea of Galilee, goes into the land of the Gadarenes, and the young man comes out of the tombs, not a stitch of clothing, and he's cutting himself. He's suicidal. He's the first cutter that we see in the Bible. And he's, he's wretched up here. And he's naked out here. But he's miserable in here. And Jesus meets him and loves him. And the Bible says whenever you see him in the next scene, he's sitting and he's clothed and he's in his right mind and he's eating across a fire with Jesus. Who are the people Jesus invites to the table? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. If you don't have wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked people emotionally, mentally, and spiritually in your church, you're doing something wrong. I mean, the reality is that's, what, that's the people he opens the door to and goes, come here. I died for you. I'm the beginning of a new creation. I'm your tomorrow. Feast with me. And, the, and, and as much as we want an identity founded in who we know we are in Christ, we don't ever need to forget that the reason we got invited to the table is because we were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And in some ways, we're still that. In some ways, we're still going, without him, man, I, just, I don't have any clothing. I'm, I'm clothed. I, I can't clothe my spirit, man. I don't have anything. I can't cover up this stuff. I can't. I'm miserable. I'm poor. I'm spiritually bankrupt without him. This is the condition. Consider who he ate with in the Gospels, and I think you'll realize what he wants for you to do. And then look at the solution. It's 3.18. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And every one of these is what he gives us. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire. In modern sensibilities, the word buy means money. So the word buy means give up some of your finances so that you, you can buy your goodness. But remember, we're in, a, we're in a context of a Hebrew people. Here's what they would have thought about the word buy, by the way. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who gets to come? Everyone that's thirsty. Look at this. You who have no money, come by and eat. How in the world can you come by and eat if you have no money? 
The Hebrew idea was not if God says to you, buy this from me, you pull out your wallet and go, well, how much do I owe you? Or how many prayers do I owe? How many tithes do I owe? How many times I got to come to church? Buy was not what you do. Buy is a term that means if you have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk. Here we go. Without money. Why no money? Because there's no price. So it's a store and there's price tags on everything. God gives, puts everything on the shelf. But when you take it to the register and they run the barcode across, it comes up zero. You get to take what you take from him because he offers it to you as a gift. You get to take what you take from him because it's free. He invites everyone who's thirsty. He invites, if you have no money, buy and eat. Why buy wine and milk without money? Because it's also without price. Verse 2. Why do you spend money on the stuff that's not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what's good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. This is a universal message. Verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me here, and your soul shall live. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercy. To... So how do you buy it? Incline your ear, come to Jesus, listen to him, your soul lives. There it is. That's the purchasing power of the kingdom. You just got to listen and you got to take him in. So when Jesus says, here's the answer, Laodicea, it's not jump through hoops, pay me a bunch of money and get busy. It's open your ear, Laodicea, pay attention. Look at your life. Pay attention to me. Incline your ear. Receive it. All right, so go back to that. Revelation 3.18. Buy your gold. Refine the fire. Shame your nakedness. 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. So be eager. Be zealous and repent. Behold, here it is. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice. Remember, hearing, hearing is how you buy. That was Isaiah 55. Hearing him and inclining your ear is how you buy. What's he offering Laodicea? I'm offering you to take another gift. Buy it without price. What's the gift? I'm hear it. I'm standing at the voice. If I'm standing at the door and my voice is what you need to hear. If you hear my voice, that's how you open the door. So what's the door? The door is your ear. The door is your heart. Open your ears. Open your heart. Listen to the sound of his voice. What will you get if you do? I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. So I'm going to bring the food. And I'm going to sit down next to you. And I'm going to offer up to you the blessedness of that food. It might have sounded like this to them who understood old Testament text. Song of Solomon 5.2. I sleep, but my heart's awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is covered with dew. My locks with the droops of the night. I point this out because the language of romance to the Hebrews was the beloved standing outside the door, not crashing a party, not barging in, but knocking. If you want me and you to have intimacy, you have to open the door. I do not kick doors down in your heart. I don't kick doors down in your mind. If we're going to eat together, it's going to be because you invited me in. What's the price you pay? Oh, it doesn't cost you anything. You just got to open your ear and listen. You got to let me come in. And so that mentality of knocking is not salvation. The church is already quote unquote saved. The knock is a call to intimacy. The knock is a call to deeper fellowship. He invites us to the table of communion. He's inviting us away from our dependency on material things. How does the story to Laodicea open? We're rich. We don't need anything. And he goes, come on. There's something more than that to life. It's not just about having a bunch of stuff. You can have a bunch of stuff and be lukewarm. That's the vice of the successful. But there's something else I'd like to share with you. I'd like to open the door and bring in the food. I'd like for you and I to eat together. I don't think it's wrong to say to people, hey, Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. Let him in. He wants to save you. But it's not contextually what Jesus is doing to Laodicea. They're not a bunch of sinners. They're saints. I don't like to admit this, but Laodicea has, has changed in my heart over the last few months because I never wanted to be Laodicea. I mean, I never wanted to be the one Jesus had to invite himself in. But I've realized that him by inviting himself in is because he really likes you and he's got some food he wants you to eat and he's saying hey there's some stuff i could show you that you don't see yet so if you'll open up your heart you and i can eat this together look at where it goes guys look at what happens after laodicea here's how this thing ends 
So Emmett overcomes, you get to sit on my throne, you, I, I overcame, I sat down with my father on his. And so part of what happens when I get to sit down with him in the dining room is I get to sit down on the throne in the dining room. The throne of, of reigning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Look at that very next verse. It's Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was the trumpet speaking to me. The door's open. The very next verse, the door's open. So what's all this open the door business? Listen, the door is open to the church. We are, we're in the throne room of God. But to every individual in the church, you're being repeatedly invited to let Jesus into the area of your heart, to the intimacy of your heart. Let him in, let him in, let him in. Lukewarm is apathetic. I don't, I don't care what happens. Yeah. <laughs> That's the tempting part of people that's already got everything taken care of. I already got my stuff. I already got my finisher. I already got my grace. I know what I got. And he goes, come on. There's always another room. There's always another intimacy. There's always another meal I want to share with you. Wouldn't you like to open that door? What a beautiful journey through the seven churches. If you've spotted yourself once, you've probably spotted yourself a hundred times. If you haven't, you haven't been listening. Frankly, if you haven't seen yourself a few times in the churches, you haven't been listening. Because there's not an eighth church he talks to. If you think you're in the church, you're in one of these at one time. And you're probably in all seven of them. And if you're not in one today, you'll probably be in it at some point. And that's not the end. That's just the beginning. That's just what happens as we journey this out. And we let him do what he wants to do. But I want you to leave knowing that you have a door that you can open and let him in. And him feast with you and you with him. Let's pray. Let's settle that in our spirits. Father, thank you for this word and thank you for this series how how much fun i've had just examining the the text and sometimes it's been really fun because i've got to see things that i never saw before sometimes it's not been so fun because i've seen me in ways i never saw me before and that's not always been good been a few times i've been in these churches and didn't want to be it's been a few times that i was the guy that needed to open his ears and hear what the spirit says to the church But Father, I thank you for that. I think all of us are thankful for that. I know I've been a little lukewarm at times and I've been a lot lukewarm at other times. There's not been very many times I wasn't lukewarm. And the vomit out of the mouth does not mean that I backslide and lose my salvation. It's to remind me that there's a Nineveh and they matter and I need to pay attention. It's to remind me that not everybody walks in the knowledge I walk in or understands the favor I understand and that the danger in that is that lukewarm is sort of a special fault of the successful and that I've had a moment or two in my life where that's been me. If that's been any of these listeners here or around the world now or years in the future that they watch this or listen to this and I think it's timeless. If these churches work for 2,000 years they work 2,000 more and let that word take root in our hearts. Teach us how to open the door and come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.